Hi, I'm Tim McClarty, and this is Brand Science. It's quilted to wrap stronger and seal tighter. It's like getting two bags of flavor in one. Welcome to the podcast. This is Season 1, Episode 1. I have a great guest to kick this off. More on her in a moment. This is a new podcast made specifically for storytellers and the creative person inside all of us. Someone once said, everyone is an artist. You just need to find your canvas, whatever that canvas may be. Over the coming episodes, we'll speak with creatives and strategists from all walks of life, from artists, entrepreneurs, to architects, and everything in between. Let's face it, waking up each day and flipping that switch to creative mode is not always easy. So I'll work hard to inspire you with interesting guests and topics to make you a better creative person, a better marketer, a better artist. These are strange days indeed. And for the first episode in this podcast, I wanted to look at the biggest story in generations. The planet is dealing with a pandemic, and at the same time our politics are shifting around the globe. But is this just history repeating itself? Today we talk with author Catherine Arnold. She's a renowned author, having written several books on old London. And in 2018 she wrote Pandemic 1918. She's an expert on the happenings of the Spanish flu pandemic. And today we talk with her to compare what we're going through today with what the world endured a hundred years ago. Catherine, first of all, let me ask you, how are you doing with this pandemic? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, touch wood so far, not too bad. Um, it's obviously difficult because people say to me, well, you're a writer, you're, you're used to being on your own a lot. Um, and actually, that's very different when it's a choice, when it's a choice to be um in this room for hours at a time, but then you can go swimming or you can go to a bar or you can go to a movie. That's fine. Um, it's not so easy if you're having days in solitary imposed upon you. And I think that's what a lot of people have found the most difficult. Even the most um, introverted and antisocial people I know have found it more difficult than they would expect. Mm -hmm. I think you have to be a very special kind of person to handle so much isolation. And I think for putting my kind of psychology hat on, it's the uncertainty people can't deal with. Um, you know, when this country, well, and the States were going through World War II, we did understand really what we were experiencing. But now it's the terrible uncertainty. It's the, is it over? Is it finished? Is it coming back? Will it be worse? And it's kind of like, um, I'd say it's, it's an existential threat because Never before in the history of the world has anybody quite experienced this degree of fear over something new. It's not a familiar enemy like a flu or plague. It's just something that's come at us from out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. Very and, frightening. And it certainly really hits home when the head of your government uh, comes down with this uh, plague. Now, thankfully, Mr. Johnson yeah. came through. But it uh, goes to show you that no one is, uh, is safe from this, uh, no matter how high or how important. So speculation is that uh, COVID-19, I just want to talk about the origin. COVID-19, uh, again, nobody can say for sure, but many think that uh, this particular pandemic originated from a wet market outside Wuhan from uh, bats and the virus jumped over to humans. That's the prevailing story right now. Uh, mm -hmm. Were they ever able to determine where the Spanish flu originated? Right. Well, in some ways, it seems like a similar story. Although I should say that just this lunchtime um, with COVID, new stories have been emerging. I say stories in the journalistic sense of the word. 
New articles have been, have been emerging suggesting that it's some kind of bloodborne disease, and that's why people who suffer from coronavirus are getting blood clots and strokes. So this is a really strange new development, and after this I'm going to try and find out more about it. But before that, it seems the Spanish flu and coronavirus were pretty similar in their origins, because we understand that Spanish flu is basically an avian virus that somehow let the species barrier and transmitted to humans. The most popular theory is that what we call Spanish flu was a virus that was active in China and was carried to the West by Chinese labourers who'd been hired to help with the Allied war effort. And these labourers went to the States, they went to Europe, they went to Britain first, then out to France. So it's suggested that these guys carried it with them and it wasn't their fault, there was there was no evil intention or anything. It's just simply that they were carriers. One thing that gives this, this theory some credence is the fact that while you would have expect China to have suffered an absolute explosion in mortality rates with Spanish flu, in global terms, deaths in China were not nearly as high as one would have expected, suggesting that there was already a degree of immunity over there. Anyway, back to the origins of Spanish flu. Some people like to claim it for the United States. Some people like to claim it for Europe. The competing theories suggest that it either kind of came to prominence at Fort Riley, Camp Funston in Kansas, or it started at a vast army camp on the Western Front in France called Etacle, because very, very similar strains of infection were isolated in both places. The weird thing about pandemics is they don't just start in one place and move on in a systematic fashion, but they seem to spring up almost spontaneously at the same time in different parts of the world, as we saw with coronavirus. Um, So there's still a lot of the etiology to look into there. Mm -hmm. This kind of fascinates me as well. Why they called it the Spanish flu, and many have looked at this and thought, uh, okay, the obvious assumption is that it originated there, but it did not. It didn't, no. Um, By the time it got to Spain, this strange unknown killer flu that had started to circulate had already taken out people, it had taken up many soldiers and people in barracks in the United States and in France and Italy. And then it kind of rolled over the Pyrenees and got to Spain, where it infected um, much of the civilian population, including the King of Spain, Alfonso XIII, who nearly died. And some of his cabinet did actually die. But the strange thing about Spain was that there was no censorship because it was neutral. The King of Spain was related to both royal houses. He was related to Kaiser Wilhelm on one side, Queen Victoria on the other. So he wasn't in the business of taking sides. He wanted Spain to steer clear. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he survived, but the king's condition allowed doctors and journalists to speculate about this strange new flu. And they could do so freely because there was nobody there to slap a D notice on it or to say, you can't talk about this because it's undermining national morale. This meant that British doctors became intrigued and they could talk about it, but only in the medical journals here, only in the Lancet and the BMJ. However, that's where it kind of gained its sobriquet. People soon started calling it Spanish flu simply because it started in Spain. And the Times of London also started referring to it as Spanish flu in about the June of that year mm-hmm. in usually quite precious articles where it was ridiculed. It was described as a kind of affectation. You know, this is just a fashionable new disease for people to get. And all they needed was a bit of cold weather and it would go away. 
Mm-hmm. That just shows yes. um, that at the time it was not taken seriously. Right. And I think that's another parallel with our uh, COVID-19, uh, as it doesn't seem to have been taken seriously by many. And, uh, Absolutely. And obviously that, uh, that was a grave mistake. In terms of the spread of the disease, it, it seems like it was uh, somewhat prominent in North America, and then it sort of wound down. And then it uh, picked up in Europe. It wasn't sort of an international uh, situation like it appears to be uh, today, with the exception of a couple of countries in the Far East. How, how did it spread uh, back in that time? And, and I understand that, obviously, these, these things, you don't just flip a switch. This uh, flu started uh, before 1918, maybe even as far back as 1916. Well, there's some evidence to suggest that something like it was already doing the rounds in France in 16 and 17, because a lot of army doctors were out there and a lot of work as a doctor in those days. um, It seems heartless to suggest, but quite boring and quite repetitive because you'd normally be dealing with injuries that uh, men had picked up at the front, you know, shrapnel wounds, loss of limbs, being blown up, basically, by Mm. mines. But all fairly predictable. Um, the old case of gangrene, perhaps, and that was it. Um, so in their spare time, here are all these doctors away from their families, sharp, inquiring minds. And they started noticing cases of killer bronchitis developing among the troops. And one of the distinctive things about this killer bronchitis was the very hard pus that was found in the lungs. So the guys are basically drowning in their own fluids. Mm-hmm. Um, And some of these symptoms were very similar to the symptoms which developed with Spanish flu. And one or two doctors started writing papers about this, circulating them to the medical journals. Mm -hmm. And uh, one doctor in particular noticed this in France. And then Adolf Abrahams, who was the brother of um, Harry Abrahams, the famous runner, picked this up. And he was working in barracks in Aldershot. And he said, well, that's really strange because I've done a paper about this too. And a lot of my men have got similar symptoms. So it could have been something that was kind of incubating. But whatever it was, something sparked it off early in 1918. And that's when it took hold like wildfire. And I've already explained that it was sort of happening simultaneously uh, in the army camps in the States. And then, of course, the boys were going home, taking it with them to the civilian population. Mm-hmm. It was in the prisons, it was in the schools, it was in some of the Native American communities. And we think it probably travelled to France. If it wasn't already in France, it travelled to France from the States, spread there. And of course, then it travelled to Europe and it travelled to Britain, of course, and it came home with the servicemen and the nurses and was very swiftly transmitted by the public transport network. So it would come into the ports in somewhere like Southampton or Glasgow, spread through the shipyards and kind of had a triple down effect into the northern industrial areas and the mines. Mm-hmm. While we try to imagine flu moving in one movement as a trajectory, we have to think of it as exploding in every direction. I think this is the most terrifying aspect of it, and this is where um, we can relate to it um, as a population undergoing coronavirus. Mm-hmm. It's the random nature of it that's quite frightening. Yes, of course. Let me ask you, uh, one of the controversial topics today is herd immunity versus waiting for the vaccine to come out. 
So in 1918, the Spanish flu, it was a vicious flu that, uh, as I've read, it's finished off its victims very quickly, often in 48 hours. Did the flu basically play itself out by taking so many lives so quickly? Your book describes how it affected victims with the inability to stand up, being so overwhelmed. And there was a doctor at the time, Dr. Newsom, who uh, even refused to issue a letter of memorandum to local authorities because he felt that this flu couldn't be stopped. Yeah, well, yes. Yes and no. Um, going back to Newsom, but I know I knew him in his role as Sir Arthur Newsom, and he was effectively head of the civil service. This was before in Britain. We didn't have a home office as such. We didn't have a minister for health. Health was organised as it is in the States um, on a county by county basis by local authorities. But basically what happened was um, Walter Fletcher, who was a top Cambridge scientist, who'd been drafted in to study the new flu and see what could be done about it, realised that it was being transmitted throughout the population by public transport. So he went to Sir Arthur News home and said, can we start quarantining public transport? Can we start limiting the amount of public transport that's taken? Because it seems to me that it's on the buses and the trains and the trams that it's being transmitted the length and breadth of Great Britain. So Sir Arthur Newsome turned around and suggested that it was highly unpatriotic to stop any kind of public transport, that the workers needed to get to work because the war effort was paramount. And although the phrase had not been invented at that time, he was pretty much saying, keep calm and carry on. Mm -hmm. His attitude was, there's nothing you can do for flu anyway. It's just flu. It seems extraordinarily cavalier with um, the health of the nation. But I guess you have to bear in mind that at that time, killer flu was not unusual Spanish flu was unusual because of the numbers it took out and the population it attacked. But in those days, it was sadly very common to die of the effects of flu. Mm-hmm. So on one level, you can kind of understand his attitude. But fortunately, although Sir Arthur Newsome didn't want to do much about flu, the US Army and the British Army did because they were worried that we were going to lose the war just because of the sheer numbers of, of boys who were dying. The Spanish flu did have an impact on... Uh, the outcome of the war, did it not? Um, yes, definitely. Um, General Rudendorf, um, who is um, basically the head of the German army, had to cancel the spring offensive in May 1918. But that would have been right, the, the big push into France when they really stood a chance of attacking the British army. It brought the war to a halt months before it might have done because they were losing so many men on both sides. In fact, the Germans lost more casualties to Spanish flu than the Allies. Wow. But it was definitely one of the engines, if, if you will, um, that led to the war finishing sooner than had, had been expected. Both sides were completely exhausted. Their manpower had been decimated. There seemed absolutely no point. In any case, the Germans were being starved out, which, right. of course, was another factor. Uh, one of the things Ludendorff said was, you know, my men are so ill and unfit compared with the British and the Americans. And that's why they succumbed to flu more quickly. Uh, speaking of which, tell us about the Doughboys who were fresh off the farm uh, and why they were particularly vulnerable. Yeah, the Doughboys, for those who don't know, the, do- the Doughboys were the farm boys, basically, the young American soldiers who were transported from the US over to France to fight the Germans. I think it goes back to immunity. Basically, they've been brought up on farms in the middle of nowhere. They've been subjected to very few infections during their childhood. 
as opposed, say, to a smart kid who'd grown up on the streets of Chicago or New York, who would probably ex have experienced a number of epidemics during his short lifetime. So it's thought that although these young men were incredibly fit and full of energy and, you know, ready to represent their country, die for their country, they were no match for the flu itself. Uh, the other thing was that Spanish flu was almost unique in that it was an autoimmune virus, rather like HIV AIDS. And so the younger and fitter you were, the more of a fight your body put up against it and the more likely you were to die. This is a big mystery of it. You know, why were young, healthy men dying in their thousands and young women too? And it was basically because the flu was setting off what's called a um, cytokine storm, mm -hmm. where your body is just throwing everything that it's got at the flu. And quite often the effort of that kills you. It's almost the, uh, the polar opposite to COVID-19, which uh, I'm not going to say that the young are uh, getting away scot-free, but uh, the, the Spanish flu really attacked people between 20 and 40 years old. And today it seems the older are more vulnerable to it, and the younger in many cases uh, are asymptomatic and have no idea they've even had or have the flu. That's correct, yes. And um, obviously there are exceptions. Our daughter, one of her colleagues who worked in the same store as her some years ago, died at just the age of 27. Mm. But there are factors in that girl's background which may have led to it. But yes, generally people are not more at home with coronavirus, but with coronavirus it is targeting the expected population, that's to say older people, people with pre-existing morbidities, for instance they're suffering from cancer, or they're extremely obese, or they're diabetic. There have obviously been cases of younger people dying, but that's been the exception rather than the rule. Right. There's also kind of a social care angle to what's happening with coronavirus, because whereas in 1918, people tended to live more in, in large communities and in big families, the pattern now is for our elderly and extremely frail to go into homes where they're cared for by strangers, you know, well-meaning strangers, but paid strangers. Mm -hmm. And so if you think of some of those some of those carers going to several different homes in the course of a week, then that I'm sure is what led to kind of the spiral in care home deaths. Right. Let's talk about treatments. Back in 1918, opiates, bed rest, and a series of folk remedies were, were treatments. They didn't have a lot in their arsenal at that time, but something I did read was that uh, there was some experimentation with the treatment of pathogens using blood that contained antibodies from recovered soldiers, similar to what's being talked about today, yes? Um, I don't know so much about the one with the pathogens, but I do know that they were working very hard to, um, to find a vaccine and at one point they really thought that they developed one so September 1918 for instance American scientists felt that a vaccine would be found within weeks and this led to a kind of sense of false security mm -hmm. so in Philadelphia for instance um, huge bond marches and victory parades took place in the middle of town you know, 250,000 strong and there was a moral obligation to attend these things because if you didn't have a little button saying that you bought war bonds, then you were a pariah, basically, and a burden on the state. And people attended these in vast numbers because they thought, OK, yeah, the flu is around, but it's all right because the vaccine will be available in a few weeks. Mm -hmm. They put a lot of work into it. One of the difficulties is they didn't really know what they were dealing with. They were just beginning to get towards the idea of a virus. 
but viruses wouldn't really be isolated as such until the development of the electron microscope in the 1930s. The first real flu vaccine didn't come in until, until 1938. It was like looking for a needle in a haystack, but worse than that, it was looking for a needle in a haystack where you didn't know what the haystack looked like, let alone the needle. <laughs> so there's a lot of well-intentioned work on both sides, right? but nothing conclusive. What were the sociological impacts of the Spanish flu? And what impact did it have on the, the women's movement at that time? Of course, uh, nurses received much more prominence because they were so essential in, in helping get through the epidemic. But what kind of sociological impacts did the flu, the Spanish flu, have on society at that time? Um, basically, before 1918 in the States, women of color were not allowed to become nurses. They were not allowed to train. Uh, it was the color bar, pure and simple. But as the death rate progressed and as the war progressed, the authorities realized that they had to start hiring black women as nurses. Um, one of the long-term benefits of Spanish flu, if there are any, one of the few comforts is the fact that the profession of nursing actually became respected. When Sir Arthur Newsholm said you can't do anything for flu, he was correct in a sense because there was no medical resource at the time. All you could do was nurse flu patients. And this was what was needed in millions of cases. You needed to be quite often washed down and cleaned up and fed with something like soup, you know, if you could keep it down. You needed to have opium administered, aspirin perhaps, whiskey. You needed above all to be comforted and looked after. And this is, of course, what nurses could do. This was their great strength. And of course, it was a hard, taxing job. They were on their feet sometimes 18 hours a day. In one woman's memoirs, she, she remembers a linen cupboard at the end of the hospital where everybody used to go and take it in turns to cry because they were simply overwhelmed by nursing so many patients and the lack of resources. For every bed, there was a man on the floor waiting for that bed and probably another man behind him. Oh, my. On the lighter side, the flu had some interesting nicknames. Can you recall some of them? I did read about, the, they called it the Naples Soldier. It was based on an operetta song that was, and I quote, was as catchy as the flu. What other, yes. na what other names did they attach to the Spanish flu at that time? Well, we'll go for the Naples Soldier first, because that was what the Spanish people called it. Uh, the Naples Soldier was a show that was running in Madrid at the time that the king was ill. And so when they started hearing that people were calling it Spanish flu, they're like, ha, we'll blame it on the Italians, basically. In Poland, they blamed it on the Russians. They called it the communist flu. In South Africa, they called it the long pest, which is kind of an Afrikaans word for it. And the Germans had a wonderful phrase for it. They called it the Blitzkatar. <laughs> and the French referred to it um, with their generic word for flu, which was uh, la grippe. Ah, yes. Your book also talks about, you actually open uh, your book talking about Sir Mark Sykes, who is a British diplomat who was exhumed in 2007 so they could get a sample of the virus from his uh, corpse to analyze. Can you speak to that? And were there other studies that came from the Spanish flu that actually helped scientists in their search for a modern vaccine or perhaps even went towards curing non-flu-related ailments? Okay, well, we'll start with um, Sir Mark Sykes who is basically um, a British diplomat, and he was one of the people who signed the Sykes-Picot Agreement over the division of the Middle East, which so many, well, over a century later, is still causing um, consternation and tragedy in many cases. But Smock survived the war, 
and went off to the Paris Peace Conference of 1919, which was where various agreements were joined up, um, including one that said there will be no more wars and this was the war to end all wars and, you know, like that worked. But basically, while he was over there with a number of other people, including Woodrow Wilson, he contracted Spanish flu. Wilson just about survived, but Sir Mark didn't. So many years later, Professor John Oxford, who is kind of the granddaddy of Spanish flu studies and Spanish flu um, research, decided that what was needed was to look at the remains of Sir Mark and see if they could find the DNA virus of the flu, which um, infected him, to see if this would be present in tissue samples. And this was no mean feat. Basically, they had to get permission from the family to dig him up. They had to get permission from the Church of England as well for the exhumation. Um, when the coffin was brought to the surface, there had to be a priest there, you know, to make sure everything was kind of in full working order in religious terms. Mm-hmm. And so they opened the coffin all wearing level five containment suits, of course, in case he was still actively infected. And they took the tissue samples, but sadly, they were of no use whatsoever because although Sir Mark had been buried in lead and therefore his body should have been perfectly preserved and ripe for research, there had been a hole in the coffin over time and the body had started to disintegrate. Mm. So in the end, the experiment didn't pay off. And in fact, Professor John Oxford has looked at other cadavers as well from um, the body of a young woman who died in Richmond in London as just a girl to the bodies of some miners found in Spitsbergen in North Norway. So far, he hasn't managed to find tissue samples which are well preserved enough to get at the DNA. Hmm. The research that has been done, uh, and it's ironic that they thought they were so close to coming up with a vaccine a hundred years ago, and that story sounds very familiar today. Can you speak to whether there was any research done, uh, vaccine research, that led into cures for other things? It seems quite often some of the greatest discoveries were made by mistake. I can't say too much about that. What I would say is that one of the, one of the people I've mentioned earlier on, who is um, Walter Fletcher, who was the Cambridge scientist. He was the guy who had the go at Sir Arthur News Home for not um, quarantining public transport. He survived, and the rest of his life was dedicated to finding a vaccine for flu and for looking into flu research. And most of this happened in the Mill Hill laboratories in North London, which he helped to found. And off the back of that, of course, we did get the flu vaccine of 1938. But I think it's important to remember that the work continues After Spanish flu, it wasn't so much a case of, right, we have to find the flu vaccine now, because um, by 1920, it seemed to have departed. But there was certainly a consciousness in scientific circles that a flu vaccine was needed. And when so many other vaccines have been developed, why not flu? Well, it's interesting, too, because SARS, of course, was uh, much more recent, and they were attempting to find uh, a vaccine for SARS, and it's sort of went away. And as soon as SARS was no longer a threat to society, funds and attention were moved into other directions. Uh, society does really seem to be kind of on a uh, emergency uh, basis in terms of uh, how we allocate our money and our resources. Well, I'm afraid that's the case. And when I was researching this, I had the misguided assumption um, that we couldn't have a pandemic on in any kind of a big scale again, because I was reliably informed by Professor John Oxford, among others, the Home Office in Britain had a contingency and rehearsals were regularly taken so that if pandemic flu threatened this country, the country had the resources to deal with it. It was a higher priority 
than a terrorist attack. Because as we can see, when a pandemic overtakes a country, it's absolutely crippled and everybody suffers, even if they don't get ill. Mm -hmm. um, I was also told there was a similar thing um, in the States with the uh, Center for Disease Control in Atlanta, Georgia, and that the White House had a pandemic flu plan. I latterly found out that in this country, because of the cuts to the National Health Service, there were far less resources to deal with it. And in fact, that the health service was terrified. The people who ran the health service here were terrified. Coronavirus would simply destroy the health service. There would not be enough resources to deal with it. Fortunately, that hasn't happened. But in the States, I found out that the pandemic plan for the White House had been kind of stepped down. And also the plans for um, Georgia Center for Disease Control had been stepped back on the orders of President Trump. Mm -hmm. So it's very much a question of these things come at us. We're not prepared for them. But as soon as they drop off the agenda, then we forget about them, as you say. Yes. And we start worrying about the next threat. Uh, let's talk about quarantines today versus uh, 1918. So today we have quarantines at home. We have the internet, so we can somewhat function uh, mm. in many ways in terms of social contact, in terms of work. How did countries handle staying at home, masks, closing down businesses in 1918? How, how did that function? Uh, I'm kind of under the understanding that businesses in the world didn't close down nearly to the extent that we have today. Exactly. It was sporadic, um, very much so um, here in Britain and the, in the United States. For instance, in the States, because, as I said, health is run on a state-by-state -state basis. Uh, st some states chose to kind of remain open at all times. Others, or, and other cities, for instance, Seattle and San Francisco and New York, were much stricter. And the most visible sign of this, of course, was the mask. Not so much in Britain, but certainly in the United States and Canada, the wearing of a mask became a very familiar sight. So, um, for instance, there are photographs of police directing traffic in Seattle wearing masks. Mm -hmm. There are whole family gatherings where everybody's wearing a mask, including the cat. <laughs> there are pictures of not just nurses in masks, as you would expect in a medical context, but factory girls in masks, people in the streets in masks. Mm -hmm. And they were very hot on this in San Francisco. And when the third wave came along after the armistice, we're talking December 1918, January 1919, the then mayor of San Francisco said, right, everybody's got to wear a mask. I don't care if it's not legislation, so in a way it's not enforceable, but nobody is going to be allowed out on the streets of San Francisco without a mask. What happened then was that a bunch of people who call themselves the Anti-Mask League decided that this was unconstitutional and they weren't going to take it. So they had a meeting. Um, history does not recall whether this meeting was indoors or outdoors or whether anybody got infected. But the moderates who turned out for it said, well, this is what we do. We send a petition to the mayor and that'll do it. But others who were far more vociferous said, no, you know, we need to take direct, direct action. This is wrong. It's unpatriotic. So they wrangled about it for some time and they sent in a petition saying no more masks. And the mayor's office really did nothing. And then in December 1918, an improvised explosive device turned up at the public health offices. Oh, my. And it contained an alarm clock to make it go off, about three pounds of gunpowder and various sharp implements. So you can imagine the, the casualties and possibly the deaths which would have ensued if, if it had gone off. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, it was, it was carefully detonated. At this point, the mayor of San Francisco says, yeah, okay. About those masks, you don't have to wear them anymore. 
But let me warn you that if you stop wearing them, the death rate will go up. So the libertarians and the sort of the equivalent of uh, the gobs stop wearing their masks. And within 10 days, 300 people have died of flu. Wow. So they were kind of the equivalent of what was going on in Michigan a couple of weeks ago. Yes. And yes. other parts of the States. Yes. Yeah. The difference being the uh, the head of government in the United States uh, seems to... <laughs> seems to be moving towards opening things up. Mm -hmm. Time will tell which uh, move will be uh, better for society. Sports and uh, movies and entertainment, everything has come to a crashing halt here. It, it appears, of course, in 1918, they had the uh, controversial World Series that went on that was bet on. So obviously, baseball was continuing back then. Sports and movie theaters were, were still open and open for business and people were sitting in very close confines even throughout this pandemic, correct? Um, yes and no. I've seen the pictures of the World Series with the baseball players um, wearing masks. That's quite extraordinary. One thing that happened was that they were trying to do what we call social distancing by having a seat between each person at the movie theatres. And the Marx Brothers had, it wasn't a movie, it was a theatrical show called Street Cinderella. And I'm just trying to remember which state it was in. It was a comedy. So basically, you have everybody coming in to see a new Marx Brothers comedy. This is when the boys were just starting out, really. But they'd heard that they were good. Pretty sure it was in Chicago, but I can always check. Mm -hmm. You imagine trying to get an atmosphere as an entertainer or a presenter when people are all sitting kind of dispersed and wearing masks. The show absolutely died on its feet. Wow. Less comically, uh, at the beginning of the Spanish flu in Britain, in about May 1918, the theatres were all, all packed full because people at that time didn't realise the danger. They didn't realise that they could become infected so swiftly. Everybody home on leave wanted to go to the theatre and all their families wanted to go with them. So you've got the case of Robert Graves' mother-in-law, Mabel, and Mabel was desperate to go to the theatre in, the, in London's West End with her son, who was back on leave. She dosed herself up, knowing that she was ill, dosed herself up with aspirin, went off to the theatre, and two days later she was dead. Oh my goodness. Does that tie in with the aspirin poison that I, I read about? Well, it may do, because that's one of the things I've read about. At the time, people would take anything they thought would get you through it. So if they thought they'd already got it, they would take all the things I've already mentioned, kind of like the traditional remedies. But aspirin was fairly new at the time. And what I suspect happened is people took it in huge quantities in order to bring down their temperatures mm -hmm. and probably ended up giving themselves ulcers and bleeding to death. Because, of course, if you take too much of something like that, it just wears away the wall of your stomach. In talking about the West End and uh, the uh, celebrity life at that time, Celebrities obviously were affected by the virus at that time. I was a big fan of the masterpiece series, Mr. Selfridge. And I understand uh, Mr. Selvridge's wife, Rose, was one of the victims. She was. It's such a sad story because she was a sort of Chicago. She was a socialite. But she wasn't one of those kind of women who just lie around the house all day counting their jewellery. She was always very vigorous and wanted to do things. So when she heard that particularly American officers were getting sick in England and needed looking after, she opened Highcliffe Castle, which is where they were living. I think it's in Dorset and said, well, you know, come and convalesce here. I will run it as a convalescent home. But sadly, Rose herself got Spanish flu and died. But um, her husband decided to keep the hospital open anyway, kind of as a memory to her. Mm -hmm. And she's buried in the local churchyard. But yeah, absolutely tragic. Yeah. I read that John Steinbeck also had the flu in the United States. And uh, the Yes. As 
Yeah, and the, as a teenager, yeah, mm. and the cure, or or at least the treatment, was quite radical. They would actually open up his lungs. And... That's right. He was never the same again. Um, quite understandably, because basically they artificially collapsed his lung to help him to recover, mm-hmm. and all this was done um, with the most basic surgery by the local doctor on the kitchen table. Oh my! Heavens. So it's a miracle that he survived at all. But his own description of his near-death experience is amazing because he. He says something like, I was passing out, I was becoming very, very ill, and I knew it was the flu. And it seemed as if the tips of angels' wings were passing across my eyes. And that was such a vivid description. And you know what he means. It's that kind of feeling you get sometimes when um, you're very, very tired or Mm jet-lagged. But those kind of visual distortions. And the legacy of it stayed with him, really, for the rest of his life. He was quite a depressed man quite difficult to live with i suppose grouchy is the correct medical term (laughs) but this didn't stop him of course being a great american writer Mm -hmm. Um, staying on the celebrity theme uh in uh london dancer maude allen we're we're recording this here in canada so i'll throw a little bit of canadian trivia in here uh maude allen was starring at a show at the london pavilion and uh, at the time uh, when all of the flu was going on, she was having a scandalous relationship with uh, Margot Asquith, who was the wife of the former Prime Minister Herbert Asquith. And she sounds like quite a character. Uh, Margot was 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 uh, definitely uh, a, a very ambitious person who did a lot of things. Now, is it true that she was accused of being a spy because she visited a, a prison of war camp in Germany? Extraordinary stuff. What you have to bear in mind with the Maud Allen story is the big word, allegedly. Okay. So Maud Allen appeared in a show called Salome based on um, a play by Oscar Wilde about Salome, um, who demanded the head of John the Baptist. So among other things, um, Maud was accused of being a lesbian, a drug addict, and even a necrophile. Um, The allegation that she was having an affair with Margot Asquith started because a rumour was going around London at the time that Margot Asquith was a lesbian, even though she was married to Sir Herbert Asquith. Never really got the inside on that, so we never really know whether that was true. But it was alleged that she was having this affair with Maud Allen, who was bravely in those days quite openly gay, lived with another woman. You have then to look at where does this come from? It comes from a guy called Billings. And Billings is an MP, he's a homophobe, and he claims that the Germans are blackmailing what he calls British perverts. And so Margot was being blackmailed, as were many other people, according to him. He had his own agenda for doing this. He was a crypto-fascist, he was later revealed as anti-Semitic. And he claimed that there was a little black book which had fallen into his hands, which told all about the um, the insider goss and all these celebrities having perverted sex. What's really strange about it is that one of his character witnesses was none other than Oscar Wilde's former boyfriend, Lord Alfred Douglas. So for some reason, Lord Alfred Douglas, one of the one of the most famous gay men of the time, was going into court and speaking up and alleging that Maud was having the affair with Margot. Well, Maud responded by taking out a rip for libel. Um, she accused that Alan's article was libelous, it was defamatory, and some of the language used in it, which I won't repeat for family audiences, um, was obscene. Unfortunately, Maud lost... My goodness, that, that um, must have made a lot of scandalous headlines at that time. That's, yeah. that's, a, that's yeah. a great story. And just kind of wrapping up, I uh, also noticed and was fascinated by uh, Dr. Leo Stanley, 
who, as we talk about uh, sort of controversial characters at the time, and, and I would say throughout his life, he was the chief surgeon at San Quentin Prison. And he chronicled the onset of the flu on prisoners at San Quentin. That's sort of his tie-in with the, the pandemic. But you mentioned him in your book, and you also, I, I read about how he later became more famous for a particular area of specialization. Uh, in one instance, he offered to purchase the testicles of a person on, on death row and pay the money to the soon-to-be widow. Uh, he wanted yep. a, a pair of new virile testes that he could uh, implant on uh, older white males to help raise the level of their uh, virility. Can you tell me a, a bit more about this, uh, Dr. Stanley? He was an extraordinary character. I mean, when it comes to being unethical, he's up there with uh, Dr. Mengele, basically, yeah. though he may not have killed quite so many people. I mean, to begin, when he was surgeon at San Quentin, obviously it being a prison, Spanish flu ran through there pretty quickly. But instead of thinking, how can I help these men? How can I uh, tackle Spanish flu in an enclosed environment and make these guys comfortable. He saw it as a research opportunity and he saw his prison as just like one vast Petri dish. Mm. It was a man-made experiment just waiting for him. So he deliberately infected other prisoners. He'd do something like they'd be in a recreation room, listening to the radio or whatever, or perhaps watching a silent movie. And he would make sure that somebody who'd just been admitted from a flu-ravaged area, or who seemed to have the symptoms of flu, would be sitting there with the uninfected prisoners. At heart, he was a eugenicist. I would like to say Darwinian, but I think Galtonian is is a better example. Mm -hmm. Um, He was a white supremacist, and he believed, of course, that his own kind were superior. When it comes to the experiments with testicles, this bizarre idea developed when he noticed that there's a lot of physical vigor in certain prisoners. But he believed that if you implanted testicles from another man into perhaps an older man, that he would get better and he would get healthier and he would have a higher testosterone level. Again, it's bonkers thinking, but you can kind of see where he came from at an era when you couldn't just go and buy synthetic hormones. I mean, now you can just buy testosterone patches or estrogen pills um, off the internet. He believed he was doing society a favour. He believed that if you took what he called the vigour of the lower races, you could somehow invigorate the white man because he believed that white male vigour was what was necessary. Quite extraordinary. Yes. Uh, He also sterilised a lot of people and, believe it or not, sterilisation of human beings was legal around um, 1900 in California. Wow. Yeah. Well... On that note, uh, I just want to say you've been a a wonderful guest. I I very much appreciate you uh, being with me today. You're currently working on a book for the United Kingdom Council for Psychotherapy. You mentioned this. Um, Yeah. That's that's more for the post-grad academic market, I guess. It is, really. I mean, I was asked to do it because I'd written about Bedlam Asylum in the past, and I'd written about, for the general reader, a book about um, how mental illness has been treated over the years, that's to say over the centuries. So I was approached to do something about UKCD, CP, and also to do this book proposal for them. And it's a lot of work. It's, it's, it's highly technical. It's involving a lot of reading and working with psychotherapists which can sometimes be quite challenging because you always feel like they want to know what you're thinking about it and kind of psychotherapy you mm-hmm. but it's it's an interesting intellectual project wonderful well we'll we'll look forward to that and in the meantime thank you again we've been speaking with Catherine arnold author of the london series of five popular history books and pandemic 1918 the story of the deadliest influenza in history 
You can purchase her book by clicking on the link in our YouTube channel, and it's available online from many of the major online book retailers. Publisher is Simon & Schuster. Catherine, thank you so much for your time today. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for asking me. That's it for the first inaugural episode of Brand Science. On the next episode, we'll speak with Dennis Garces. In his last life, he worked in the music industry, promoting artists. Today, he's a social digital entrepreneur. He helps shape the perception of brands online. And with all the discussion of what's real and what's not on the internet, he's an excellent person to speak with. Learn more about upcoming topics, helpful links, and more on our website, brandsciencepodcast.com. Brand Science is produced at Radio Radio Studio in Toronto, Canada. I'm Tim McCarthy.